If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 34 as we continue this morning in our short series that we're undertaking entitled Refuge in Him. So we'll be looking in just a few moments at uh, Psalm 34. I don't know how many of you are aware or were aware of it, but last Monday was recognized as National Takeoff Your Makeup Day. So how many of you? I went without makeup Monday in honor of that, just so you know. But uh, uh, but anyway, in honor of that day, uh, Candace Cameron Bure, you may not recognize that name, but she's known for the role of DJ Tanner in the sitcom in the 90s, Full House. She's also a well-known public figure, but she posted a picture of herself without any makeup. I only know this because my wife came to me and and, and told me about it uh, because she follows her on Facebook. And she mentioned that she she almost didn't recognize her without her makeup. But what caught my attention was she also said that several of the people who follow her had posted comments about her her picture. And and that there were comments saying things like, wow, you really look terrible without makeup. And and just on and on, multiple responses like that. And, And it just made me think when she was sharing that with me that that. Most people or many people aren't really fans of celebrities like Candace Cameron Bure, but rather really fans of who they pretend to be, you know? Now, you might say, well, what does Candace Cameron Bure taking off her makeup have to do with Psalms? Well, nothing really. But, interesting enough, this this scenario uh, of what happened in that case serves to illustrate how, how many of us uh, think of the stories uh, recorded for us about many of our biblical heroes. We, the way we approach those things. We often idolize figures like Noah and Abraham and Joseph and David and Daniel and, and others because of the great things that they may have accomplished for God. Yet, in reality, as we see the accounts of their lives unfold through the pages of scriptures, if we really pay attention to the, the full stories about these people... The Bible seeks at one point or another to remove all the makeup and allow us to see these so-called heroes of the faith as they truly are. And when we see that, we're not so often all that impressed. For example, Noah believed God and was saved by God. And he got off the boat and he got drunk. And it led to a serious violation of God's holiness that impacted his descendants from that day forward. Abraham... You know the stories, lied on several occasions in order to protect his own skin, and even doing so, placing his wife at great risk. Joseph, well, you know, the conceited, arrogant younger brother who carelessly flaunted his gifts in order to exalt himself above his brothers. You remember him? And David, well, well where do we begin with David? David's life is plagued with moral and ethical dilemmas and compromises even beyond the obvious adultery and murder. Suddenly, when we remove the makeup of of these, these figures, these biblical heroes, we begin to discover that we're often more enthralled with the Hollywood version of these biblical characters than we would ever be with who they really are or were. We are fans more of who they pretend to be, or really who we imagine them to be, than with who they're really revealed to be in Scripture. Now, Psalm 34 is a, is a product of one such scenario. You see, David, in his attempt to flee from Saul, you, you probably are familiar with the stories, as he fled from Saul, he found himself fleeing to a, an unlikely place, the land of the Philistines, to Gath. And it was in that land that he found himself threatened by their king. You can imagine so. Because Gath was not only Philistine territory, but it was the hometown of Goliath. And if you go back and read the story, David walks into town carrying Goliath's sword. So probably not a real smart place to, to flee to. But nevertheless, David does. And we find the episode of this account in 1 Samuel 21. You can read about it. Well, you see, the king of the Philistines was very aware of David's great victories and how people would sing of how David slain his tens of thousands while Saul had slain his thousands. And this report brought before the king caused him to view David as a great threat. 
So in an attempt to save his own life, David pretends to be insane. The description of the story in 1 Samuel tells us a little bit about how he pretended to be mad and he, he drooled down his beard. It gives you a little description of this really debasing of himself in order to save his life. And so as a result, the king of the Philistines basically decided that David was a bigger waste of time than he was a threat. And he demanded that he be sent away. And so David fled from there and found himself inside of a cave in Adullam where he was later joined by 400 men, of which David would later become the captain over. It was these circumstances, this story that inspired David to, to pen the words of Psalm 34. And it was his fear and his distress and his sub- subsequent escape that, that caused David to reflect upon God and his ways, what, what he was doing in the midst of these mundane circumstances. The, the words of Psalm 34 serve... As a reminder that whether by means of man's obedience, in spite of his ignorant rebellion, or even through personal humiliation, God works to accomplish all his divine purposes. So rather than turning despondent through his fear and his disgust and his shame and his guilt, David looks outward and he looks, more importantly, upward to the greatness and the graciousness of a righteous God who faithfully acts on behalf of sinful people like David and like you and I. Apparent in David's words in this psalm are the themes of praise and fear and shame and guilt and righteousness and deliverance. But ultimately, all these, these, these themes that we find as we read this psalm, all of them find their, their full meaning in light of the only place or maybe rather the only person in whom anyone can find true deliverance and ultimate refuge. So the psalmist invites all who reflect upon these words recorded in Psalm 34 to experience along with him the goodness of God For those who would place their hope in him. In the words of the psalmist himself, which we'll see in just a moment, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So let's read together these 22 verses recorded for us in the 34th Psalm. It begins with the superscript there that gives us the setting of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. So that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Our Father, 
We thank you for this word and we pray in these next few moments that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds that we may not merely hear them with our ears but with our hearts and that in this time that your your spirit would work in our midst and would do a work that, that we ourselves can't do for ourselves. A work that only you can do as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we find ourselves immersed in the wonderful truths of your word that you have so graciously granted to us in the pages of the Bible. So Lord, make us attentive with our ears, with our eyes, with our hearts in every way to the Spirit of God working in the midst of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 34 serves to encourage and exhort us on on several different levels. As you read that, there's so many ways in which we can interact with a psalm like this. And, And as is the nature typically of Hebrew poetry, which Psalms is a part of, or that's the structure of Psalms, Hebrew poetry... David uses a great deal of, of repetition throughout. And you find that in the Psalms when you read it, right? You, you read some of the same things over and over. Uh, and David ke- is in keeping with that style. And he repeats throughout in the Psalm in order to emphasize the deliverance that God provides for those who trust in him. It's not a new theme. It's a theme that begins in Psalm 1 and you see repeated throughout the Psalms. And there's a point to that. And in this Psalm, we... As we read through it, we'll work our way through it. We find an evident theme of encouragement for those who find ourselves struggling in the midst of the trials of life. Regardless of where you may be this morning, you've either had a trial or having a trial or will soon probably enter into a trial. So we recognize the encouragement, I pray, in the midst of this for such people like ourselves. And there is a clear element in the midst of these this, these verses as well of an ethical and a practical insight for us uh, that we are to, to read and, 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 and heed and seek to model our lives after. As we work through that, I think we'll see that if you haven't already noticed. The Psalm 34 also serves as a great example of how all scripture is connected by a single thread. Now, this might not be so quickly picked up as we read through these passages, but In other words, what I mean by that is that all scripture seeks to convey one ultimate message, which culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we've heard that, and and we obviously aren't going to know it doesn't, but we might not have really seen it throughout the pages of scripture in different ways. And and so I hope that that will be evident this morning of how the the, the thread of of scripture is woven together, even in the midst of this psalm. Because this psalm looks, looks backwards. Uh, It picks up themes that are recorded for us in the law of God, and it uses them to to convey its message. Matter of fact, it it picks up scripture recorded in both Exodus and Numbers. It seeks to continue this the overall theme that's been weaved throughout the book of Psalms from the very beginning and continues all the way through the end. And those themes are the same as what we saw a couple weeks ago and last week, but particularly as we introduced them to you in Psalm 1 and 2, such as... Delighting in the law of God, uh, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, God's king set on Zion and the place of real and lasting refuge. These are themes that we see continued and repeated. The New Testament reveals that this psalm, along with many others, is relevant to both the life of Christ himself and to the life of the church. You see, John quotes this psalm in John 19 in reference to the crucifixion of Christ. And then Peter later uses this psalm as the guiding principle for which, by which he writes the book of 1 Peter, where we find throughout that book he alludes to or quotes to this particular psalm on several occasions. Now, with all this in mind, we are reminded that when reading the psalms, as we've tried to say to you since we started this series, the psalms, uh, we are to read the psalms uh, from several perspectives. First, from an ethical and practical perspective. We are to hear and heed what it encourages us to do. We're to read them from a legal perspective as we see the the demands upon the righteous and the wicked and and how that comes out, which is provided for us in the law of God. We're also to read the Psalms from a prophetic perspective, which I think we'll see again today. And through these varying perspectives, David provides us with a psalm that... First, exhorts us to corporate worship. It declares God's faithfulness through personal testimony. It invites us to enjoy the personal preservation 
that God provides for his people in this life. It admonishes us to live a life of righteousness. It reminds us of God's relationship to not only the righteous, but also to the wicked or the unrighteous. And it points us to the solitary righteous one capable of redeeming our lives. You see, from the very beginning in this psalm, David provides us with an exhortation to corporate worship. And you hear it very clearly in the first four verses. You see, as 1 Samuel 21 relates the story to us, David narrowly escaped Achish, the king of the Philistines, as he fled to that isolated cave in Adullam, where later those 400 men that I mentioned before, who were, the Bible tells us, in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul, these were the men that joined David. In response to his deliverance and and the meeting of these men who come alongside of him, David expresses a great deal of gratitude to God for his deliverance. In the midst of all that was going on, this was David's response. David declares, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praises shall continually be in my mouth. You see, David resolves to praise God no matter what the circumstances may be in his life. Whether he's in the midst of wondering whether he's going to have another breath because a spear might pierce him from Saul or whether he would be uh, uh, killed by his other enemies, the Philistines, or whether he would be isolated and alone in the midst of a cave somewhere in a faraway place. He chose or he determined, he resolved that he would praise God no matter what the circumstances would be. In God and God alone, he says, I will make my boast. My soul makes its boast In the Lord. You see, David doesn't credit his escape from Saul. You may remember that story. He was warned by Saul's son, Jonathan, and he fled for his life. But he doesn't credit his his escape from Saul, nor his escape uh, from the Philistine king through the guise of being insane to his own ability. Or his his own uh, design. But rather, he gives the credit to God and God alone. And he declares that the praise of God will cause... Now hear this. He says in the midst of this, he, he says that the praise of God will cause the humble to be glad. And I find it very important or very interesting. He, he declares his praise for God. And he says, let the humble hear and be glad. You see, the outward praise of God is declared here in this Psalms to be a means by which others are made glad. You, do you ever think about it that way? When we think about praise, we think about glorifying God, which that is correct. But do you think about the fact that praise can make others glad? Therefore, for this reason, David invites others to join with him for this purpose. That's why he says, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As God is praised corporately, others will hear the praise And be made glad. You see, the Apostle Paul recognized this same truth, maybe from a little different vein, but he writes in his letter to the Corinthians, instructing them about public or corporate worship, he addresses this when he says in in chapter 14, but if all prophesy, and what that simply means is all who declare truth with their lips, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And so there's something about this this corporate, outward uh, exercise of praise and worship. And it's for this reason that when we come together, or that we do come together, in order to worship God corporately. I mean, part of that is, yes, we just want to exalt God and and sing praise to Him. And and it does become a very personal thing, but it doesn't stop there. It's a corporate thing. In our corporate praise, not only is God honored and exalted, but others are made glad. Now, maybe sometimes the way we praise or the lack of the way we praise, some others might be, you know, repelled. I don't know. We should think about that. But the idea is that this praise is meant to to make others glad. Therefore, as those who fully believe in the infinite worth of our great God, we, we should long for the opportunities to honor Him while encouraging and edifying those who gather with us. I mean, how many of us came here today thinking, and I want to praise the Lord this morning, and as I do that, I, I pray that, that someone around me is, is made glad 
as they hear the praise of God, even if their life's down in the dumps in this moment, as they hear the praise issue forth, that their hearts would be made glad. How many of us think that way? Because as a church, we exist to glorify God. God's glory includes the joy of his people. Why wouldn't we want to gather corporately and make our praise known? Why wouldn't we want to come in here and sing the songs that we sing with all our hearts? Why wouldn't we, as those who declare how great God is, want to come together and celebrate out loud and very expressively how great our God is? Why wouldn't we? I think we should make that declaration that David makes in Psalm 34 our own. And maybe we need to repeat that time and time again throughout the week. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And may that be the overflow of our individual and personal worship. Just as David said, I will bless the Lord at all times continually. His praise will be upon my mouth. But it doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't say, and church really doesn't matter. He says, so magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. But David's praise is not without its reasons. He goes on to communicate why he is so grateful to God. By providing a personal testimony. Something that we're familiar with, at least as far as terminology. A personal testimony. Now, while a personal testimony is personal and unique to a particular individual, it is not about that particular individual. It serves as a, as a real-life lesson or a real-life expression of the truth itself. You see, a testimony is intended not to tell others about ourselves, but about our God. Right? And David does just that. He expresses his personal experience only to then make a declaration about God that is true for everyone. It's not merely about his own experience in isolation that may be different from other people because that's that's often true, right? Your experience is not exactly mine. But what he does is he 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 expresses this personal experience and then declares the the principle, the truth about God that is then available or true for every single person. His testimony exalts God's faithfulness and makes it available to the hearers. You see, his, his testimony doesn't make him look unique. You know, the kind where you're going, wow, I just really wish I could have that experience. You ever hear those kind? You're like, why do everybody else have those amazing experiences and I never do? Well, the problem might be that maybe the way we're communicating those experiences are, are placing more emphasis on us rather than on the God of those experiences of whom has principally the truths behind that are available to you as well and should be at some time true in your lives. And so in verses 4 through 7, David moves back and forth from this, this concept of personal testimony to what can be called propositional truth, which simply means something that is absolutely true. It's a declaration, a statement. It's not a question. It's, it's just something that's stated as true. So in other words, he expresses a, a personal experience in order to then make a general declaration of truth. Now understand that his, his experience, his personal experience doesn't determine that truth. But it serves as an illustration of that truth. As he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You see what I'm saying? This personal testimony that gives expression to general declaration of God's truth. And so in the midst of David's distress, he, he, he had evidently prayed that God would intervene. And, and that's just what God did, right? Maybe not in the way we might think he does, but through this scenario of David's insanity, God delivers him through that. And David declares that he sought the Lord and God delivered him. And then in the poetic fashion... David declares that everyone who turns to the Lord will not be sorry, but instead be radiant. And I, I really like the language here. It, it seems that David is, is certain that anyone who looks to God will not be disappointed. That if you look to him, that you're not going to be disappointed, but rather he uses this term that, that expresses the idea that it will shine, will be radiant. 
Now, this imagery is of one's face shining as opposed to being downcast. You recognize the difference, right? There are, there are times when my little girl, Adasa, when, when I, she'll have this, she'll just have this mundane blank look on her face. You know, her mom will be holding her. Or maybe she, sometimes even when she's upset. And I'll just go up to her and I'll just look at her and I'll just smile. It may be a fake smile at the moment, but I'll just smile and I'll just look at her. And, and she'll look at me and she'll stare. And some of those times, more often than not, after she stares at me, for just a second, suddenly you see her face change. This, this, this blank look begins to turn up. And it's not just about the mouth changing position. Suddenly, what was blank and just kind of almost an upset look completely transforms her entire countenance. And you've seen it, right? You look at that face and then what happens in return is our countenance is, is radically changed. That, that smile lights up the entire face. The eyes glare. The countenance is changed. And I think that this is what David is trying to convey for us in these words. Even when our countenance is that of great difficulty and distress, which is probably that way more often than we'd like it to be. When the troubles of life are pressing hard in upon us and and things aren't going the way we'd want them to. When we look to God, even with that blank stare, you know, that like, why God? Why me? You know, what's going on? We look like a deer in the headlights. When we look to him, if we gaze at God as David says eventually our countenance is changed and our faces become radiant. We begin to shine. David declares that this is true for all who will look to God. And if only we would look to him, that our countenance would be transformed. You see, David then goes on to cast himself he, as a poor man. He says, this poor man cried out in verse 6. And the term that he uses can be translated several ways. Some of your translations may have a different word. Poor, humble, afflicted, uh, ashamed in a sense. And, and I think probably David is trying to convey this, this ideal of shame coming out of the, the previous verses. The shame and guilt and affliction. And it, it is from that state that he cries out to God and, and he says he was saved. He was delivered. And, and, and in these verses we find... Uh, that he's conveying that our God is a God who sees, as he uses the words for looking and that kind of stuff, and he, he conveys that our God is a God who hears, but not only that, that our God is a God that draws very near as he encamps around those who fear him. He says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This is another general declaration. So David illustrates or pictures God as one who enters into our worlds. He enters into our troubles and he surrounds us by by making his camp around us in order to protect us from our enemies, whatever those enemies may be. And when I think of this, when, when I think of God making camp in the midst of our adversities, in the midst of our difficulties, I can't help but think about what John says in John chapter one. And maybe you've already thought of that. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and in verse 14 he says, and the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt in the middle or in the midst of us. Literally that verse reads or says that the Word tabernacled among us, or in other words, he pitched his tent and camped with us. Now, while David provides us with a vivid picture, an illustration of God's concern for his people, I think this picture comes to life for us in the very person of Jesus Christ. As we, as if this points us to that reality of not just a momentary, uh, a moment where God enters into our world, but when God literally and in every real way entered into this world and dwelt in the midst of the sinfulness and the rebellion that was here for the very purpose of protecting us from the enemy and delivering us from all fears. You see, just like David, we too must declare our testimony of God's faithfulness in such a way that doesn't put the attention on me or on us, but that magnifies the truth about who God is and makes his grace available to all those who hear us. As David continues to verse 8, which is probably the most memorable part of this psalm. He extends an invitation to his readers and to you and I as he writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Now, while our God is not limited to or defined by any one person's experiences, by David's or by mine or even by yours, we are invited to personally experience how great this God truly is. And whether or not one experiences God's goodness it doesn't determine or change the fact that, that these things are true, that he indeed is good, but what we realize in this passage or in this, this one verse is that knowing or doctrine alone is not the height of knowing God. We must hear, we must understand stuff, things, truth. We have to understand those things before we will ever come to know God. But knowing truth about God is not enough. We are invited to experience the goodness of God for ourselves. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, whether we accept the invitation or not, it still stands true that our God is indeed good. Whether the world out there agrees with us or not, or agrees with David or not, doesn't change the fact that our God is indeed good. And those who taste and see will, I believe with all my heart, and I believe David seeks to convey, those who taste and see will come to recognize this truth. They will not taste and see and come out saying, the Lord is bad, or he's not all that great. They will taste and see that he is who he is, and that is that he is good. Those who taste and see will have this testimony. Peter alludes to this very passage in the book of First Peter, chapter 2, when he writes, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's a question in there, isn't there? Have you tasted? Have you seen that the Lord is good? David then goes on in verse 8 to restate this reality. He'll taste and see that the Lord is good in another way. He follows that line with something that conveys the exact same truth when he says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Those who, who would hear David's words saying this, and this is a phrase throughout Psalms, but those who would hear these words in, in his day, in that culture, would likely be reminded of the law of God concerning particularly the cities of refuge that are outlined in Numbers chapter 35. You see, in the law, God made provision for those who might be guilty at some time or another of taking another life. Now, this provision wasn't for the one who, who, who maliciously and attempted to try to go just for no reason at all, kill somebody. But if there was an instance where you took somebody's life, uh, God said that there would be six cities set up so that those people could flee to. Because if if your life was, if, if you took a life, then the relative of that person killed could avenge them. They could kill you. And that was okay. Maybe not with you, but it was right. It was within the bounds of the law. It was justice. But if you fled to the city of refuge, that city was required to then provide protection for you for fair trial and those things. And Numbers teaches us that, that that person is to abide in that city of refuge. And as long as they're in that city, then they're protected from the avenger of blood. If they choose to leave, well, it's on them. But if they remain there, and check this out, until, the number 35, verse 25... He shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. The moment the high priest died, then he was free from his guilt. He could leave and no longer be held accountable for that act. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? And so so as David writes this, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I, I can't help but think these guys are thinking of this city of refuge and already built in that is this idea of the death of the high priest, bloodshed for another. Now, David doesn't take us that far here. But nevertheless, he introduces it. He goes on and we're instructed to fear the Lord who delivers us from all our fears. Doing so, he says, results in sufficient provision for life. I know that's not of interest to any of us to be provided for, but nevertheless, it's in the Bible. That if we fear the Lord, then it's sufficient. It will result in sufficient provision for this life. And those who trust in the Lord as their refuge and fear Him, David teaches us here, will not lack any good thing. And now, 
we can simply go to Jesus' words to help us understand what that means. Matthew 6. You're familiar probably with part of this. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But what? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things should be added to you. This is exactly what David says. Those who fear the Lord will not lack anything. He uses the illustration, young lions who are strong and you would think that they would be aggressive and and have what they need. But even those lack food and go hungry. But those who fear the Lord, they will not lack any good things. Those who seek after the Lord will not lack any good thing. Why? Because God has promised to provide for us. Then in verses 11 through 14, David admonishes us to live a life of righteousness. Now, he doesn't go into all the ins and outs about the difficulties we'll face, but he nevertheless says, this is how we should proceed, a life of righteousness. He calls all those, and I pray you and I, who would desire to know the fear of the Lord, to to hear his words. He says, come, sons, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And in verse 12, he asks this question, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? What, What person among us desires life and loves many days that he may see good. We could restate this question maybe in a better way for us to understand. Who among us wants to find hope in life? Who among us wants to discover meaning in life? And I think to one extent or another, that incorporates every single person, whether a believer or unbeliever, that we're pursuing some sense of meaning in this life. We're driven to pursue that. We all share this characteristic in common. David proceeds to teach us that if this is our desire, then we should be attentive to how we live both in word and in deed. We should strive to keep our our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. And we should turn away from evil and do good. He, He addresses our speech. He addresses our confessions. He addresses our actions. And then he goes on and says that we should seek peace and pursue it. In verse 14. And notice now that none of these admonitions are passive. But instead they're active and they're aggressive. We are to strive. We are to do something. We are to pursue righteous living. And this doesn't mean that if we can somehow figure out how to do these things successfully, that we will somehow become righteous all on our own. But that the true pursuit of righteousness, or I should say the pursuit of true righteousness, will result in this kind of living. In the one who strives to to keep his tongue from evil and his mouth from speaking deceit. And the one who continually turns away from evil and does good. The Bible clearly teaches us. That true righteousness comes only by way of faith in Jesus Christ. On the basis of grace and grace alone. But that this grace issues forth in our lives through our pursuit of righteous living. And again, this is the, what, exactly what Peter takes up in the book of 1 Peter. You see, 1 Peter is a book written by Peter to a, a scattered group of people due to difficulties, tribulation, persecution. They're struggling. They're, being, they're, they're suffering And he calls upon them in the midst of their suffering to do what? Live holy lives. He says, therefore, be holy as I am holy. He quotes the Old Testament. In the midst of their difficulties, as though they didn't have anything better to do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he admonishes believers, rather than retaliating to the suffering that they're experiencing, they are to pursue holiness in this way. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessed for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn from, from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Then we continue to verses 15 to 18. In these verses, David repeats what he has already stated for us pretty clearly, but this time in a little bit of a different way, in order to emphasize uh, particularly the relationship that God has with both the righteous and the unrighteous, or the righteous and the wicked. 
See, he teaches us in, in these verses. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and the ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off their memory from the earth. When the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. It's not anything new that he hasn't already said, but his emphasis here is now on that the differing of the relationships. God is attentive to the afflictions of the righteous. And both hears and responds on their behalf, on your behalf. Uh, if you are one of them, he, he hears and he responds. But never forget, he is against the wicked. His face is set against them. And the categories of the righteous and unrighteous are concrete and discernible. There are those that God recognizes as righteous and there are those whom he views as wicked. There are those whom his ear is inclined to and those whose his face is set against. And as was the case in Psalm 1, we are compelled to question which of these groups we ourselves find ourselves in. Are we the righteous or are we the unrighteous? And these first verses further echo what we saw in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And those who are deemed righteous will experience the favor of God and stand in the judgment, while those who are unrighteous will not stand in the judgment and will have their memory erased from all existence, is the language that is used here. This reality teaches us something about the future. That there is a day coming when all who are righteous in that category, who, who experience the favor of God, those who taste and see that the Lord is good, there's a day coming when, when the righteous will be so far removed from the existence and the effects of sin that it will be as though they do not even remember such a time when the wicked walked among them. Their memory will be erased from the earth. And then finally, in verses 19 through 22, David brings his thoughts to an ultimate conclusion. With one very unique change in, in his language as he writes this psalm. Throughout this psalm, David speaks of the righteous ones in a general collective sense. But now suddenly, in verse 19, he turns his attention to a single righteous one. He states that the afflictions of the righteous one are many, but the Lord delivers them from him from them all. And David then includes a unique metaphor as a way of supporting this premise. You can read it there in verse 20. He keeps or he guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. I mean, what's that got to do with anything? Well, this illustration comes from Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. It is an instruction to God's people that God provided them concerning the Passover lamb. Let me give you a, a couple quotes from that. Exodus 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you, after you having circumcised. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And then in Numbers 9, we have something very similar. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. So suddenly David now takes this metaphor and, 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 and ports it into this encouragement, this psalm that he's writing. And he's basically saying that the righteous one that he mentions, this individual, by the way, the singular in verse 19 is, is viewed in light of this Passover lamb that was the means of God's delivering his people from bondage. And David goes on in verse 22 to state that God would ransom or redeem his servants and that no one who takes refuge in this righteous one would be condemned. So now I ask myself, what is David talking about? Well, it's very likely, at least in the moment, or possible, I should say, that David is, is thinking of himself at this moment. He's casting himself as, as the anointed king of Israel, which he was, right? He'd already been anointed to be king. He just wasn't king yet. And, and that the king of Israel, his role was that of the previous judges. They were to deliver 
God's people, to protect God's people and provide them refuge. So it's very possible that David is seeing himself in light of that, that as the righteous one anointed by God to be king, that he was like the Passover lamb, to a means of deliverance of God's people. And that's exactly what the king would or was supposed to be for God's people, albeit, as we read through that, we find that it's never done perfectly. But if we go to the New Testament and we read how the New Testament authors read words like this, for example, in Acts chapter 2, we, we might find another way in which we should read that. In, in the sermon that Peter preaches at, at Pentecost, you remember that sermon? When he stands up and says, you know, hey, what's happening now? This is what was foretold. And he basically tries to show how this all points to Jesus. And let me read that passage to you. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue re- rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What Paul did where there, I mean, Peter did there, is he said, I know David said this, but David, he's dead. His body's seen corruption. I don't think he was talking about himself, even though it sounded like he was. He was looking forward and seeing something prophetically. And I think... Very likely, that's exactly what's going on here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him, that righteous one, will be condemned. So in light of this, and in keeping with, the, I believe, the proper reading of Psalms, David reminds us that there is but one righteous one who would suffer many afflictions on behalf of God's people. This righteous one is the only one who can provide sufficient refuge and deliverance from condemnation. And through this one, God would redeem his servants. The Apostle Paul, Apostle John, recognized this very truth when he wrote in John 19. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So through life, through the life and words of David in this psalm, as well as many other psalms, we are reminded yet again that that God is a God who is very near in the midst of the trials and tribulations of our lives. However, Simple they may seem or however great they may be. Though we are not promised deliverance from our trials tomorrow, or maybe not even next week, maybe not next year, and maybe, maybe not even in this life, we are promised that God will deliver us. Yet, we do often experience deliverance in this life at many times. And when we do... We are to make known the faithfulness of our God individually, but even more as we invite others to celebrate with us and declare how great is our God. And when we do this, often others who have yet to experience this marvelous grace that we ourselves know, they hear it and they are compelled to look to him. All who trust in Christ as the only sufficient refuge will not find themselves downcast and ashamed, but it says, instead, as David reminds us, they will be radiant as they look to him as their source and strength. And all who do this will truly taste and see that the Lord is good. God sees, God hears, and God enters into our trials with us. 
He redeems the life of his servants, David reminds us. All who call upon him will be saved, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, therefore, I invite you together with me to declare what David himself declares. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. The the humble will hear and, and be made glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture. We thank you that we are continually encouraged and exhorted just by reading these words, by meditating upon them. And then ultimately always finding ourselves back at the same place, the foot of the cross, as it points us to that great righteous one in whom we all must take refuge in. Father, I pray for each of us here who have experienced your amazing grace that we would be reminded yet again and again and again that as we taste and see, our experience is that the Lord is indeed good. And I pray, Lord, that we would not seek to keep that to ourselves, but rather we would seek to gather people like us, those who have experienced and tasted and seen how good you are together in a place like this so that we can corporately and collectively declare the praises of our God and that we would do so in such a way that the the world looking in upon us would would be compelled to at least look in your direction. And, And then as David says, that those who look to him are radiant. So, Father, I pray that that would be our response to to such words as we read in this psalm. And then, Lord, if there's those who are here this morning who have never experienced your grace, they've never tasted and seen how good you are, they've never fled for refuge in Christ, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that would fully and gladly embrace the marvelous promise that you have given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that that person here today would run headlong into the refuge provided through the cross of Christ. Father, work in our hearts this morning as only you can. Speak to us, particularly where we are in our lives. Whether things are going good, whether things are going horrible at this moment, I pray you would speak through your Holy Spirit and encourage us and compel us to, to, to issue forth with praise for our great God. And that as we walk out of here this morning after this these next few moments that, that we wouldn't walk out here with our heads downcast and as though we've been forced to come to this place and sit here once again. But we'd walk out these doors with great excitement because we have been in the house of the Lord. And that that excitement would spill over outside these doors. I can't help but think, Lord, that if our testimony was that of David's, if we were continually saying, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times, and magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. If that were continuing our testimony, I can imagine the excitement wouldn't draw others to come and and be compelled to look and check out and see who this God is that we proclaim. So Lord, I pray that the result of your word in our hearts and our lives would compel us to expressive and exciting praise for you. Father, work in the hearts of your people now as we sing and reflect upon this, this scripture. May you do your great work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.